every time I go outside wearing this scarf, I find men attractive. Getting discomfortable with being gay. When I was 13 years old, I was riding a bus to an acting class when somebody said, if you don't know whether you're gay or not, it means you are. And I was like, I don't know. And that really haunted me for a long time. I was like, I, I just, I just don't know. It's so interesting. Before that time, I don't recall ever thinking about whether I was gay or not. But as soon as somebody said that, I just felt this deep fear that I wasn't sure. My feeling at the time was that I could not be gay, that that was just completely unacceptable. My view of the gay community was of this really marginalized, unattractive, I pictured like old, hairy men wearing leather harnesses. I saw it as this very deviant, perverted, Tom of Finland lifestyle that could never be reconciled with mainstream society. And I remember literally thinking I would rather die than be gay. And I really didn't think about it anymore after that. Looking back on high school now, I can figure out, oh, I had a crush on that guy, and oh, I found that guy attractive. But at the time, I wasn't aware of that kind of thing. I, I remember feeling jealous of certain guys, like, I wish I looked as attractive or as cool as them. And I now realize that jealousy was how my brain <laughs> deceived myself into thinking I wasn't gay. I mean, I, it really was like my ego. My ego was so afraid that I would actually like kill myself if I thought I was gay that it, it very cleverly hid it all. And I was like, ooh, that guy makes me feel a certain way. And my ego was like, that's called jealousy. It's very normal. You're jealous of him because of how fit he is and, um, and cool and stuff. I remember having these weird fantasies of like, dancing with guys but not with them like kind of like <laughs> i would picture a sort of like a break dancing battle like i would do a bunch of dance moves and then they would do a bunch of different dance moves but then like we would do a choreographed dance together not that we had choreographed it but it's like we all just knew the same moves and so we would like do the do the moves at the same time but <laughs> always kind of like against each other and, and it just, like, I, yeah, I really just didn't realize how gay all of that was. And I remember one summer we took a family road trip, and I guess we only had one tape to play on the whole road trip. Actually, I think we had two. We had Paul Simon's Graceland, or maybe it was Rhythm of the Saints. We had some Paul Simon tape, and then we had another tape that was, like, pop hits... 1986 or something like that it was it was a series of classic 80s pop songs including cindy lopper paula abdul was definitely on there rick astley 
like the original Rick Roll song, <laughs> Never Gonna Give You Up, whatever that song is called. That was definitely on there. But there was one song on the mixtape, and every time it played, I felt this dread that the song was so obviously about the fact that I might be gay. The song was called Moonlight Desires by a Canadian rock singer named Gowan. And it's actually quite an incredible song. Like, I actually really like the song today. I found the song both alluring and terrifying at the same time. It just, whenever it played, I felt so drawn to it. And there was this sort of like emotion and mystery about moonlight desires. Like, what did that mean? But at the same time, every time it played, I felt so exposed. It felt like the car's tape deck was shining a spotlight right at me saying, hello, family, like, come on. Haven't you noticed that maybe your son could be gay? And it's interesting that it had that effect on me while at the same time I was so repressed. It's like... At once, I didn't think I was gay. Like, it wasn't like I knew it and I was in the closet or hiding it. Like, I just didn't allow myself to think it. But at the same time, there were these clues where it was, in retrospect, so obvious. Like, this song and how it made me feel so exposed in the car, but I couldn't exactly say why or how. It wasn't until my early 20s that I went to film school and I met another filmmaker who was gay and we ended up working on a film together. I actually remember when I first met him finding him so annoying. He was so flamboyant. I was like, of all the people in this film class, he is the one person I am not going to be friends with. But then because we ended up working together through the stress and drama and insanity of making a movie it kind of forced us to bond and we became friends. And he kept pointing out that one of my friends was really cute. And I remember thinking, yeah, he's right. That guy is cute. And a few of my straight friends and I were hanging out one night drinking and we played this game. We were like, tell the group something you've never told anyone. And the thing I told was, I kind of find this one other friend of ours who wasn't there at the time attractive. Like, what does that mean? Is that, am I gay or bi? And they were like, I don't know, maybe it's just a weird one-off. <laughs> so in university, I started to think, okay, I, I might be bi, like maybe, I don't know, but I'm just going to focus on girls. And around that time, I had my first girlfriend. And during the year and a half that we dated, I actually completely forgot about the whole gay thing. And we had a perfectly normal relationship. I remember it just felt like, it didn't feel like I was living a lie or anything, Though I do recall that the first time we had sex, I remember being like, oh, that was a bit of a letdown. I remember thinking, oh, it's so like society to like hype up this thing called sex. And then like you do it and it's like, mm, it's okay. Shortly after that relationship ended, I got into another film program in Toronto. And so I moved from Vancouver to Toronto. And when I arrived, it was just starting to get cold so my mother mailed me a scarf, and the scarf was multicolored. It wasn't a rainbow exactly, but it, it, had, it had a number of colors. And I remember putting it on and going outside and walking down into the subway, and there on the stairs was this guy who I thought was attractive. And it, like, it hit me like lightning. I was like, oh my God, I'm gay. 
this is, of course, of course I'm gay. Like, that guy is attractive. And then I remember when I got home, I took the scarf off, and I was like, hmm, I don't know. Maybe I'm not gay. What am I thinking? I was all confused. So, to try to discover how gay I was or wasn't, I started looking at gay porn. And I found it repulsive. Like, I just thought the guys were disgusting. I thought the whole thing was just disgusting. I thought it was awful. So I was like, oh, okay, so maybe I'm not gay. Like, I don't, I don't know. And then the next day, I put my scarf back on. I went outside, and I saw another guy. And I was like, that guy's attractive. I'm gay. <laughs> and then I got home, and I took the scarf off. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'm not gay. And then I was like, wait a minute. Every time I go outside wearing this scarf, I find men attractive. And I started to wonder if the scarf was magic and like the magic hat that made Frosty the Snowman come to life. Maybe this multicolored scarf that my mother mailed me was making me gay every time I wore it. This went on for quite a while until the winter ended and I finally realized without wearing my scarf, now that it was warm enough, that I still found guys on the street attractive. So uh, I told all my friends, I was like, okay, this, this, is, this is what's going on. I want to experiment with homosexuality because maybe I'm gay. I, I'm not sure, but it seems like I am. And my friends were all like, cool, all right, good for you. And what was interesting was that I was totally incompetent at getting a date. <laughs> like I just, I, I went maybe two years before I could get anyone to go on a date with me or or at least work up the nerve to ask someone to go on a date with me. I don't know why. Like, I guess, I mean, I didn't go to a lot of gay bars. I was very prudish and, and, and kind of like still latently homophobic. In fact, my only connection to other guys was an app called, not even an app, a website called Friendster. I don't know if anyone remembers Friendster, but Friendster predates MySpace. And if you don't remember MySpace, MySpace predates Facebook. Friendster was basically the very first Facebook. And I remember using Friendster to seek out guys that I guess it was clear were gay. And I would send them messages on Friendster to try to, try to like get dates, which did not work. Did not work at all. I think the truth is, I couldn't do anything gay. I, I wouldn't allow myself subconsciously to do anything gay, to kiss anyone or even really go on a date until I had come out to my family because something inside of me just said that I could not live a lie. I either had to be totally repressed and ignorant or I had to do nothing until everyone in my family was on the up and up about it. And, and maybe looking back now, what I was really looking for was approval. I needed to get some sense of approval from my parents, really, in order to go through with it. Even though I knew that it was true anyway and there was nothing you could do about it, maybe it was that I didn't know if they would approve, but I was going to convince them to approve. But I still needed that approval, which, of course, is shame. So I decided I would have to tell my family, and I realized I was going to be home that summer from Toronto, and every few years, my family would sometimes have a family meeting 
where my mother would ask us to lay out our plans for the future, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, this would be the perfect way to do it because, to be honest, I wasn't entirely sure how my parents were going to react. But I was almost certain that my siblings wouldn't care. So I figure if I tell everyone at once, I have like a lot of backup and my parents kind of can't freak out. So when I was talking to my mother, I just sort of casually let slip like, oh, you know, we haven't had a family meeting in a few years. Like, I'll be home in the summer. Like, maybe, maybe we should do that. I don't know, like, whatever, maybe. And she was like, oh, of course. And that seed was planted, and she went to all this elaborate trouble of, like, questions and stuff that she sent out to everyone to have this meeting. And my mother announced that the theme of the family meeting that year would be transitions. So I came back to Vancouver that summer when I finished school and the meeting finally happened. And it just so happened that in the way the meeting started, like drawing straws, I was to go the very last. Which was sort of fitting because it's not like anybody was going to be able to top what I was going (laughs) to unleash. However, what made it really stressful was that at the same time, my sister-in-law's sister went into labor with her first child. So my brother and his wife were like, okay, guys, sorry, but like we got to get this meeting over with quickly because we really have to get to the hospital. So by the time it got to the very last person, me, they were like, AJ, like, please, just like, what do you got? What do you have to say? And I was like, uh, well, mine is a little bit more serious than everyone else's. Uh, I think I might be gay. I mean, I can't remember exactly what I said. I can't, I remember, I definitely said that, but I can't remember what I said afterwards. I definitely at one point said like, I don't know, maybe I'm bi, like I haven't dated any guys yet, but, uh, you know, I'm going to figure it out. And I remember, surprisingly, my father said, I'm proud of you. And I was like, oh, wow, okay, great. And my siblings were very amused. My brother was like, oh, so this is why we're having a family meeting. It all makes sense now. You know, you could have just told us in an email so we didn't just waste three hours of our life in this ridiculous meeting. And I remember my younger brother even apologized for for calling me gay. He's like, oh, I'm sorry that all these years I've been calling you gay. I didn't realize that you were actually gay. My mother, however, sort of just like smiled politely and that took a few months of work to get her on board with things. I told my family that I was gay only in theory because I hadn't kissed a guy or even been on a date or I had never had a boyfriend, anything like that. I was still a total gay virgin, even though I wasn't a virgin. It's just that I lost the wrong virginity. I remember shortly after coming out, my straight friend and I went to a hipster bar. And this was, you know, mid-2000s. They were playing Young Folks by Peter Bjorn and John. We Are Your Friends by Justice. That that, that was the, the era. And I was at this hipster bar, and I remember looking through the dance floor. And at the other end, there was this adorable blonde angel dancing with some girls 
And I was just like, wow, that guy is so cute. And I think maybe we made eye contact. And I was like, I think he might be gay. I'm not sure. Did he look at me? I can't believe it. Like, no. I just had no idea whether I was attractive or not, which in retrospect is a real shame. And since then, I had I had moved on from Friendster and I was on MySpace. And somehow I went on MySpace and I saw him. I was just like looking through various people and, and I saw, I found the, the profile of this adorable blonde guy. And I was like, oh my goodness, it's him. So I started sending him messages. And I was incompetent. And he was quite aloof. So it was clear that the dynamic was that I was supposed to be the aggressor. But I was unable to do that. So our exchanges would just go nowhere. and. It's embarrassing, but this actually continued for four years. I would see this adorable blonde angel once every few months at some club, and I would never have the nerve to talk to him in person because I couldn't imagine that he would actually find me attractive. And and I was never flirtatious with him when I talked to him on MySpace, so I couldn't tell whether he liked me or didn't like me. And then I would sort of ignore him and run away, And then afterwards, I would send him a message being like, sorry, I didn't talk to you. And eventually, I think he just stopped responding to me. In fact, at some point, I can't remember when, I went to a club and we looked at each other and he like rolled his eyes and then he found a different guy and made out with that guy in front of me and I like wanted to die. Finally, after four years, I decided I'd had enough with Vancouver And I was going to move to Toronto. And one week before I moved to Toronto, I went to a club with some friends. And there was this blonde guy. And he came up to me and was like, hey. And I was like, hey. And we just started talking. And we had some drinks. And we danced. And then I was like, hey, there's an after hours. Do you want to come? And he was like, I don't know. Should I come? And I was like, I don't know. You you decide. And he was like, should I? And I was like, yeah, you should. And he was like, okay, then I will. (laughs) And so then we went to this after hours and he read my palm. And then we started making out and we went home together. Of course, my home was like completely empty because I was packing up to leave. Meanwhile, with one week left, I had finally connected with this, like, dream guy that I, for some reason, never thought would find me attractive. But it turns out he did, because I'm just an idiot who didn't know that he was cute, who just didn't recognize his own worth at the time. And over the course of that last week, we hung out every other day. And I remember one day we went to a park together, and we were sitting in the grass... And this older lesbian walking a dog walked by us and was sort of eyeing us and then stopped. And she said something like, oh, you guys are so cute. Like, are you a couple? And we were like, no, not exactly. He's leaving for Toronto in a couple days. And I remember this woman just sort of like eyed us. I felt like she was a clairvoyant. And she was like, oh, this is going to be very sad. (laughs) And we were like maybe and then she disappeared with her dog on the very last 
day before I left, I remember that my apartment was completely empty. I didn't have a bed. I didn't have anything. But I didn't want to ask if I could sleep over because I don't know why. I just, I was afraid to demand that on my last night. And instead, we ended up stopping in front of his house and we hugged for a really long time and I said, I don't know how to leave you. And he said, just turn around and walk away. So I just turned around and I walked away. And I walked down the block and around the corner and then I sat in a pile of leaves and just started sobbing. And then I went back to my empty apartment. And all that I had was a pile of laundry in a closet. And I don't know if this is true, but in my memory, I just curled up like a hamster in this pile of laundry and slept the entire night on the floor in like dirty socks and things. And the next day, I flew to Toronto. Looking back, now that I understand relationships and dating and sex, it was so absurd that I waited four years to ask this guy out because... I just didn't think he would ever be attracted to someone like me. Now I look at photos from that time, and I'm like, you were such a babe. Like, what? You were, the, you were so cute. What were you thinking? I learned that you should never discount yourself in that way. You should never decide that you're not good enough for something or for someone. That isn't to say that you should obsessively try to date people who aren't interested in you. But you should at least make your interests known enough that someone can say, no, I'm not interested in you. And then you can move on. And I've, I've realized that there's, you know, we say things like, oh, they're out of my league. And yeah, sometimes there will be people who won't be into you. But it doesn't necessarily mean that anyone is out of your league. And the only thing that's really holding you back is the belief that you're not good enough or not attractive enough, or not smart enough, or not tall enough. I'm constantly discovering little hang-ups like this, like, oh, why would that guy be interested in me? He's so much taller than I am. Or why would that person be interested in me? He's so much cuter than I am. Anything is possible. And the biggest disservice we can do is to never at least find out for sure whether something is possible or not, because we've already decided that it isn't. That being said, I've also spent a lot of time investigating why it was that this certain type of younger, blonde angel was so attractive to me. I had a kind of obsession with a certain type, and I have since decided that anytime you're really attracted to any kind of type, it's probably more to do with what they symbolize to you than any kind of innate attraction. I think physical attraction is often 
based on shame. When I think back to when I was a kid and how I, I looked with fear and terror and judgment and disgust at gays and how they were all in my mind, this, this older, muscular, hairy, manly, leather-wearing, Tom of Finland kind of guy, I, I equated my gay shame with a certain type. So that type of manly, masculine, older, big, jockey, dominant man, that became a source of shame for me. Even though now, like looking at like those kinds, those kinds of guys are totally hot. Like, what was I thinking? Of course, those guys are hot. It was the fact that I thought they were hot latently that created so much shame. Like, that's why I felt shame about them is because I didn't want to find them hot. But this was all subconscious, of course. So when I went after young, blonde, twinkie guys, that was a complete reaction to the fact that they were the exact opposite physically of these Tom of Finland manly men. So I was using physical attraction as a kind of anti-shame. That isn't to say that I objectively don't find these kinds of twinky, quote-unquote, guys attractive. I do. But it's clear to me now that there is a whole psychological shame component fueling that type that isn't really accurate to what I am and am not attracted to. So if you have a type, if there's a certain very specific type that you're attracted to, I encourage you to investigate that thoroughly and think about what it is psychologically about that type or its opposite that might be regulating shame in some way for you. And what's more when you're attracted to someone because of their type, you're not really seeing the person inside. You're kind of simplifying them down into this iconic archetype and and actually placing them on a pedestal. And that's not only unfair to you, it's unfair to them. They can't possibly live up to this ideal that you're seeing in them because they're just a real person. You're actually robbing them of their individuality, of their imperfect humanity, of of their uniqueness. And it creates a power imbalance. And while that kind of power imbalance can be hot sexually, it doesn't lead to a sustainable relationship. I think you're much better off in any relationship, whether straight or gay or otherwise, having a sense of equality. I think relationships are so much more stable when you get over any kind of power dynamic like, oh, the man who takes care of everything and the the woman who stays at home and, and needs protection. When you realize that you're both totally equal, capable humans, you will respect each other more. You will get along better. Like, I think relationships just work so much better with that even playing field. And hey, if you still need that power dynamic to spice up your sex life, well, that's why they invented role play. <laughs> 